0: A utopia for Europe is a utopia for the world. We have to remember that unless Romani people are safe and secure, the rest of Europe is not going to be safe and secure. And that's that's the utopia, is that we all live together and we we create love and we create beauty and we create knowledge in a secure way together. Romatopia. topia Roma-taj-sintura e čeren svatokatrlenđi utopia. Sarbišaja e Europa t'harateavel.
1: Hello, Letšu Divis and welcome to our next episode of the podcast Roma-topia. Roma talk about their utopia for Europe. My name is Isabel Rabe and I'm hosting this podcast together with William Bila.
2: Hi, and a big welcome to everyone also from my side.
1: In this podcast, we are going to talk to Roma from all over Europe and beyond about their lives, about their experiences, and about their utopia. We want to present counter-images and counter-narratives to oppose stereotypes and prejudices.
2: In the coming months, we'll be talking to a number of noteworthy community members from a varied cross-section of the Romani peoples. I'm really interested in hearing about what being Romani is to other people, because we don't often get a chance to discuss such things. For those who do not know, the Romani peoples are Europe's largest minority. This includes Sinti, Roma, Hitanos, Romanis, and other groups who loosely share a common ancestry and have been present in Europe for well over 600 years. Through linguistic theories we know they originated in India, traveled through Persia, and were present in the Eastern Roman Empire for some time before dispersing throughout Europe. Their economic and cultural contributions have historically been overlooked. Their history is an integrally interwoven part of European history, which also is often mistaken as one of external exclusion and hardship, though periods of extreme persecution did make their mark well before the 20th century and the genocide which we suffered during the Second World War. After the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989, Romani peoples have gradually been making themselves more visible on the European scene. Thank
1: you, Bill, for this brief journey through Romani history. So let's welcome our today's guest, Ethel Brooks. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for, for being here with us. Ethel, we want to start with a little game. We asked a friend of yours to describe you in just one sentence. I'm going to read this sentence and you have to guess who said this, okay? Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so... Ethel is a role model for modern, feminist, intellectual Roma identity in the 21st century, in which Roma descent is no longer perceived as a burden, but as a tremendous chance. Ethel, any idea? No,
0: well, it could be Bill.
2: No, it wasn't me, I promise. <laughs> although, although I could say something like that. I, I I, like the quote, but it wasn't me. No, I can't take credit for it.
0: Is it Anna Mirga? No. <laughs> Is it Daniel? No. <laughs> is it Isabel?
2: <laughs> should we give a little hint?
0: Yes, we should. Oh my gosh, I have no idea.
2: Let's just say it is a fellow academic from somewhere in Europe, perhaps perhaps the German-speaking world. Uh, Gerhard Baumgartner?
0: Yes, you got it. You got it. <laughs> oh my well, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, for g- <laughs> Thanks for giving me a kind of geographic center for that.
1: <laughs> we asked Gerhard. He is head of the documentation archive of the Austrian resistance. Ethel, uh, how do you know each other, Gerhard and you?
0: Gerhard and I met, oh, maybe eight years ago, seven years ago in, at an IRA meeting, I think. It was either an IRA meeting, meeting, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Um, absolutely, that's where it was. And and we met and we immediately hit it off. I mean, he's just so lovely and so warm and, and really smart, you know, just really a wonderful conversationalist. But also we had this kind of shared commitment to, to understanding... Romani history in in a deeper way and in a more kind of, you know, looking at the Holocaust and Roma and Sinti experiences in the Holocaust is kind of central to larger questions of European history. Um, We also enjoy having dinner together. And I'm also thinking there was, even before we met, I knew about his work. And in particular, I remember the first time I was in Austria, and I had been invited to a lecture in Graz. And I, I, was, I, had, I, was, I think I had like a week-long residence in Graz. And as I was on the bus coming in, I, I realized that I thought that there was a Gerhard Baumgartner in Katz. So I contacted this person, and I sent these emails, and I never heard anything. And then when we met finally a year later, I said, you know, I remember when I was in class, I was trying to find you and I was sending you emails and I, I think I called your department and he said, oh no, no, that's the other one. There's a, you know, that's the one in, a, in the business school or the economist or something. It's a different gar- gardener.
2: <laughs> oh, you're kidding. No. <laughs> oh my god Oh, because I was I was going to say uh, I think I also met him around 2012 uh, in a different location and mm-hmm. I also have trouble contacting by him by email that he never responds
0: actually me too me too it explains a lot it was the other one it was his it was his doppelganger maybe over there. he just says there's
2: another one maybe there isn't ah! one he's just saying that
0: he's a man of mystery
2: ah. <laughs> Anyway, moving along, Ethel, I would like to ask you a question. Could you describe yourself in one sentence?
0: Wow. Uh, In one sentence.
2: Or a couple of short ones.
0: I am... I am generous and outgoing, and I, I love people, but I also have... A deep sense of Who I am And what I think is right
2: Oh, thank you Well, I'm going to read a little bit of your CV Off to, to our listeners here now And Okay uh, and But before
0: you do that, I'm really goofy oh. as well Sorry, I'm just very goofy <laughs> So okay, now you can read You can read anything off of my Okay, CV.
2: thank you, yes, it's that's clear <laughs> Okay <laughs> Ethel Brooks is Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Sociology at Rutgers University, and the Tate Train Transnational Fellow at the University of Arts London, where she was the US-UK Fulbright Distinguished Chair in 2011 to 2012. Brooks is a member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, Chair of the European Roma Rights Centre, and her contributions played a central role to the creation of ARIAC, the European Roma Institute for Arts and Culture, where she continues to be a member of the Barbalipé Academy. She has served on the U.S. Delegation to the Human Dimension Implementation Meetings of the OSCE and spoken in the General Assembly for the United Nations Holocaust Remembrance Ceremony and also co-founded PREZAK, performing Romani Identities Strategy and Critique, a network of academics, artists, and organizations from across Europe and internationally. Brooks co-directs the Feminist Critical Analysis course at the IUC Dubrovnik and the Summer University course on Romani studies at CEU. Brooks is the author of the award-winning Unraveling Garment Industry, Transnational Organizing and Women's Work. While based in the U.S., she has clearly made significant contributions through these roles and others to the European Roma movement. How does that sound?
0: Wow. That's pretty good. Thank you. (laughs) You know, I keep saying, wow, I'm going to sort of try to vary up my vocabulary.
2: but um, (laughs) That would would be good for a professor. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Ethel, we want to know what made you the person you are um, and to get to know you better. Let's talk a bit about your childhood and about how you grew up. What is your most vivid memory of your childhood?
0: I, I think my most vivid memory is is of being surrounded by love and of my aunts of my in particular my my grandmother who was also ethel my mother charlotte my aunt tally my cousins and and the kind of strong and extremely loving network of women that i was surrounded by so
1: family and women are very important for you
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Where and how did you grow up, Ethel?
0: I grew up in New Hampshire, which is in the northeast of the United States in New England. The first place I lived was um, a trailer with my mother and my father. And it was right next door to uh, to the trailer where my Grammy and my uncle lived. And I remember, and that was, you know, for the first Seven years of my life, I lived there. And growing up in that area, you know, I, I, I have this kind of, the other memory that I have is of everybody in the, in the trailers around us um, in this trailer park and how I would go as a child because I was an only child. My parents had married uh, in their late thirties and I would go around and visit all of the people in the various trailers, sort of by myself at the age of three. And you know, there was a deaf couple in one of them, and I we would I would sit with them for hours and figure out how to communicate with them, and we'd sort of talk. And then there was uh, an old lady um, in another called Missus Reed, and she would give me uh, snacks. <laughs> And of course I would be with my Grammy and my uncle and I, you know, that was, that was kind of amazing where we had a kind of porous and extended household that, you know, until my, until my grandmother's death when I was five really made me feel protected and, and loved.
1: Hmm. actually i read that your family uh, is in the u.s since five generations and that they imported horses from europe to the usa is
0: that true yeah that's that's my understanding i mean you know we end up passing things down orally and from what i've learned they came over and and actually so Kristen. Race. He had done some research and actually found the boat upon which my kind of ancestors came over, uh, which was a boat from Glasgow. The, there are various stories. One is that we brought the horses with us and, and started, because my grandfather was a horse trader and a horse racer. We always had horses in the family. Uh, another story that my mother used to tell was that there was a woman, Mary, who was some you know matriarch who had made a lot of money with horse trading. And she was blind and she had taken the entire extended family over on the boat to come here for some sort of miracle operation to, to restore her sight. And I don't know if, any, if her sight was restored, but that was another story that I was always told. And that she had married, before she came to the U.S., a non-Romani man who had taken on her last name and it kind of married into the family in what you would see as a kind of gender reversal.
1: Did your family experience eviction?
0: Yes. When they came to the U.S., I don't know how long after, but sometime by the 1870s, they had bought a pretty large piece of land in Massachusetts, and it was sort of the meeting place across generations. It would be the place that people would come and stay. During my childhood, uh, there were two small kind of one-room houses on that land and a water pump. So, you know, there wasn't sort of running water and things on the land, but it was the place that my mother was born. It was the place that, you know, my whole extended family would come to. It was near the cemetery where our generations of family were buried. And sometime in my childhood, probably when I was nine or 10, the land was taken over by the state uh, through a process called eminent domain, right? You, You know what eminent domain is basically saying that the land wasn't being used productively. So they took the land and they moved the two elders of our community, my great aunt and uncle, and then another great aunt uh, into public housing, sort of out of the homes that they had lived in all of their lives.
2: And they, they took it or they didn't pay anything for it? There wasn't any minimum price required or anything?
0: I'm sure there was a minimum price required, okay. um, but you know, that's how evictions work, right? Yes. You yeah. you give the minimum and you kick people out, even when you've got this kind of land that is really central to your family. Um, and to this day, that area in Massachusetts on the census tracks is called Gypsy Hill. It's, you know, we always knew it like going back home to Gypsy Hill, like, but there's no other kind of recorded history of, what that land meant to my community or my family. Because that that space now, from that space, you've got this kind of, you know, you have thousands of people in this diaspora across New England who have really, you know, traced their, their, their roots back to this piece of land that was taken away.
2: Have you ever consulted a lawyer and asked about, like, is it worth it to try to bring up some kind of, I don't know, uh, some kind of... Lawsuit uh, to try to get it back, or or is it just really, yeah?
0: It's it's done. You know, done. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. This is I'm 52, and you know, this is a 40 some year old occurrence, and and the family really has scattered in ways that you know are are very. It's it, it's done, and so no, I think it's too late for that. I wish we had known that you know 45 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
1: Speaking about that, uh, what is the situation of Romani
0: people in the U.S. right now? Uh, Well, so I actually just had one other thing to say about the land. I do think that, you know, one of the things as I'm working on this book project, I begin with that moment of eviction to to talk about kind of the connections between Romani people and, and our experiences and our histories, even in the diaspora, you know, in the U.S. and the connections with Europe. And so... Well, yeah, thanks Isabel. That actually does make the connection quite well. Mm. You know, to this day, uh there's still you have kind of anti quote unquote, you know, anti gypsy police experts who, you know, sort of look around for these kinds of ideas of, of Romani crime. And and you know, I there are still a lot of things that, that people experience that you don't quite expect, you know, given kind of what we understand about the United States is, you know, and, and these histories of supposed equality. Um, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement has been calling attention to the ways in which that's a myth in many ways. But I think it depends on very kind of local circumstances. So if you live where I live right now, you know, and and for myself as as a professor who can also pass through the world as, you know, seemingly non-romani which is something that I constantly fight against you know there's there's not there's not a lot of I don't have a lot of persecution you know and that's and that's partly because of the way in which romani people kind of move in the world right if we're with our families if we're with um our communities then then we're targeted and you know, growing up, my mother, they, they had been kicked out of school. They they didn't experience, they didn't have the kinds of of security that you would expect simply because of who they were. And then for me growing up, you know, there was always a kind of, oh, she's, she's you know, she's one of, the gage would, oh, she's one of us. And then they'd realize, no, actually, this is where she lives. This is who her family is. And I would, you know, friends would, be taken away from their parents wouldn't let me play with those those friends growing up once they figured out that I was Romani and there was always this constant kind of raising of um or, or the fear that you know you'd be that that kind of insecurity right that everything could change and shift under you and I think in the U.S. as well you know you have recent Roma migrants who continue to experience exclusion and you have kind of long-standing Romani you know communities like like my own where we don't necessarily always experience on an everyday basis but there's always the fear that all of a sudden as i said the ground will be taken out from under you
1: hmm.
2: but the teachers in your school did they did they know or did they treat you differently do you feel that that your education was affected i mean you talked about the parents and the other kids mm-hmm. uh in the community but what about the actual instruction yeah.
0: The teachers didn't know, Um, you know, I was a really good student and my mother, you know, one of the things growing up, we would go to the library twice a week and bring home stacks of books. And my mother always made sure, you know, I I had to get all perfect grades. And, you know, there was this, this way in which she was really, I think because she herself had been denied school and, and she loved learning and she loved reading that she really, you know, pushed me to kind of excel in everything. And so the teachers didn't know. And what what would happen in the classroom would be that we, you know, we'd be kind of going along, doing our work. And then suddenly one of the kids, you know, and I remember this vividly from when I was a teenager, or, or they, you know, just bring it up randomly in the classroom, like, oh, gypsy girl, go sit in the back of the room. And, I think the teachers saw it as a joke, but it would be a kind of a constant thing that would come up from some students in particular.
2: Oh, uh, and they uh, were too clueless to know that they should say something. Yeah. yeah.
0: And there were a couple of times where I would go sit in the back of the room because, you know, the, the kind of teasing would would become so strong at that point. And I don't, the school just had no idea of how to kind of, even though I had cousins in school, you know, we there was a pretty pretty significant number of us um, in that school system. And yeah, the teachers were just clueless.
2: And when you moved on to university?
0: You know, I'm a first generation, you know, our generation was the first to finish high school. And I was the first, I'm um, a first generation college student, you know, and, and so university was none of us, you know, that was, I was the first one. And it was very lonely. I went to a very elite university on a full scholarship, you know, kind of amazing, uh, but it was only me. I was the only Romani person there. And what I remember is being in my second year and hearing mm-hmm. that there was another Romani person on campus and I was super excited. And I, yeah. Yeah. You know, Talk about I, that. Talk yeah. About that. <laughs> and I, I looked for him, you know, I, I got his name. I tried to find him. Everybody's like, Oh yeah, yeah. No, there's really, this. so I, I went to find um, where he was and I found when I finally met him, there was a, it was a young guy wearing uh, a cape or a robe with, <laughs> <laughs> with like moons and stars. And, you know, he, he had a little bag of tarot cards and he's like, yes, I am a gypsy witch. Right. It was this whole thing. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, okay. Hmm. And, you know, and then I find out, you know, later, like he's, he's, what he's done is he was like me, you know, he came from, from a working class or a poor family, you know, on full scholarship like me and racialized, but different, you know, he was, he was Puerto Rican. And for him, he really thought that if he, you know, if he claimed kind of this identity, that it would be something that would allow him to come into this, this school in a way that was much less stigmatized. And I think what he didn't realize oh. is that he was oh. taking on another stigmatized identity that was really, I mean one that that has become also on the other side so exoticized in a very deeply racist way. You know, that he was he was sort of taking on the mantle of racism in one way to hide his own kind of vulnerabilities in another.
1: Mhm. Did he know that uh, Gypsy or Roma are real people, or did he just think about it as something I don't know, um, fairy tale character?
0: Yes, I think that was it. And I, you know, of course, I, I, I talked to him about that. And that was, you know, there was this. I think one of the things that you always try to do is to say, "Wait a minute, you need to know this. We're actually, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we we <laughs> we have a history. We have, we we have a language. We have, we have." uh a culture and we're not, you know, these kind of mythical creatures like like wood elves or sprites. I mean, that was sort of, <laughs> you know, where I yeah, we are people.
1: Ethel, um, when did you become a feminist?
0: Ah, I must have been, you know, bef- when I first again came to university, I was not a feminist. I was really strong. I was a socialist. I was very opinionated and outspoken. Um, and I was really committed to social change, but at the very first kind of when I first entered into this world, I really thought that being a feminist and being Romany or being and you know we're kind of antithetical. So what I you know what I realized over the course of my my very early twenties, you know, going from a teenager into my early twenties, when I started to think about all of the strong women in my life and and my own strength. And then I started to sort of read more feminist theory, but even before that, really thinking about what it means to be a strong woman. It was then that I became a feminist. And I think it took a couple of years as I was kind of going through that process to actually claim the mantle of feminism. And, you know, and to think, okay, this is... Yes, because I think the other side of it is, even though I know how strong all of the women in my family are, I know, I know that I'm strong in many ways, but to claim the kind of authority that I thought, you know, for years, I thought, oh, feminism is out there. It's out there. I clearly am not, you know, but to actually be able to claim the authority of feminism, of a kind of knowledge production, of just, you know, being... Being who I am unapologetically was something that was quite life changing,
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah, and it later became one of your central research topics. We get back to this later. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Ethel, you travel a lot between Europe and the U.S. Where not exactly now. is you? <laughs> not now, no, not now with COVID. That's true. Yeah, not for at least uh, since the lockdown. Um, yes.
0: Because we don't want me to get in trouble.
2: No, of course. Of course. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Where do you feel at home? Where's home for you now?
0: Home is always where my family is. It's my 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 little family here in New Jersey, but it's also my family in New Hampshire, Maine. My my cousins, my sister. I, you know, my cemeteries, I wish, you know, is where, you know, where my mother is, where my father, are, my father is, you know, the, the places where I have those roots, but also the larger family, you know, which I when by that. I mean, you know, in Europe, I feel very at home if I'm with the people that I love. And that means, you know, my friends and my Romani brothers and sisters and cousins, all of that, you know, within Europe. So I feel at home in a lot of places, uh, as long as there are people whom I trust and whom I love and who trust and love me
2: there. Given given that, uh, yeah, you have traveled a lot between the two um, mm-hmm. and you are based in the U.S., do you have any, let's say, general impressions you could maybe share about what you find as an American coming to Europe. uh, Europeans often have a rigid idea about identity. Do you, do you have that impression that Europeans think this way, or is that just a a stereotype of Europeans?
0: Uh, I think yes and no. You know, it's been the first time I ran, when I was in Dubrovnik the first time. You know, that was, that was sort of, now. now I've kind of learned how to navigate it, but when I went to Dubrovnik, I somehow thought, oh, well, I, I know, you know, there's a deep Romani history in the former Yugoslavia. And I walked into the room and I really thought also that the U.S. and my own kind of trajectory, because I was in the U.S., would be, and at that point, I didn't really know, you know, the, the kind of ways in which segregation and the kind of refusal of education for Roma in Europe manifested itself in very much the same way as in the U.S., so that I wouldn't find another Romani person in a higher education room at that time, right? You know, now I would, but still it's very rare, right? And that's that's work that we have to do. But when I was in Dubrovnik and I sat, you know, talking, we were all talking about her work around a seminar table at this feminist conference. And when I said, well... I'm I'm Roma, I'm, I'm Romani, and, you know, how many of you, you know, have, like, can we talk about this, this as a research topic, but can we also just talk about what it means to be in this space for, for are there other Roma in the room? And people thought I was joking, and they, they started to laugh. Oh. And someone said, sure, Roma are everywhere. And, and I still, I, I didn't, it sort of hit me, right, that not only was I again the only one in the room at that time, but that people thought it was absurd that I could be even asking that question and I, I I started to cry, you know, in front of in the middle of this seminar. That's really stuck with me. Yes, I think in a lot of ways, for Roma, Europe is very closed and and for a lot of racialized communities. Um, there, there, there are spaces and there are people where that's not the case, but we can see it in, you know, the rise of, I mean, I, I but I can't say it's any different from the US because we've got Trump, but in the rise of, um, of nationalism and the ways in which, you know, as borders become more open, some members of society close, you know, from Brexit to, you know, Orban in Hungary or to you know to the various right wing movements across across Europe and the ways in which it's become stronger in recent years when you can see that there is a kind of closeness that what what's heartening is that there are Europeans who actively fight against it and our work also as roma is to continue to open up those spaces for ourselves and for everybody
2: yeah 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 and that's particularly hard, as you mentioned now, now that uh, there has been the lockdown, there are travel restrictions. Um, how did you experience that personally, you with your family?
0: The lockdown and travel restrictions, well, we're here. Yeah. Nope. All of us are here, you know, and as I said, it's it's always really important for me to spend a few weeks home, you know, in New Hampshire. With my were
2: you allowed to go from between New Jersey and New Hampshire during this wow. time? Or were you allowed to go out? Of, I don't know how strict the lockdown was in New Jersey compared to New York City. and
0: It was very strict. I mean, so our, in the Northeast, it's been very, very strict and there have been very strong kind of the laws against movement have been, you know, Very firm for the good. I mean, that's we we shouldn't be moving in that way, right? So it was really it was touch touch and go for a while because. And I was, you know, calling my my cousins and you know my sister and saying, okay, I'm going to try to come. We're going to try to do this in August. And and my cousin, who's you know sort of like my my best friend and my you know my sister, my best friend. She's just like, no, you're not coming. No, you're not coming. It's not safe. And and. at the moment around July, when the, we, we, we had a kind of travel, an opening for travel, but only for certain states who had, you know, come under a certain level of infection. So that meant New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and then Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. You know, that was when we, we realized that, okay, so we, we were able to do it. I was able to go up north and spend a few weeks with my family, which is really what feeds my soul. And to be in the place that, to see, go to my parents' cemeteries and to be in the place where I grew up and where my parents grew up and just be home.
2: Okay,
1: thanks. Since we cannot meet in person due to the pandemic, um, you cannot pass by and bring us a cake or something, but we anyway asked you for a virtual <laughs> Gift because <laughs> we love gifts, um, and we ask you to bring an object, an item, whatever that tells an important biographical anecdote or an important moment in your life, or which represents a central idea or guideline in your life. So, um, what did you bring us, Ethel? Well, next
0: time I see you in person, I definitely will bring you cake. <laughs> 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 but in the meantime. I brought a few things, but I think the one that I want to talk to you about, which you can't see because this is a podcast and not a a video shoot, is a photo of my mother that I keep on my desk. And this photo that I'm bringing you is, I think, from the 19, maybe from 1965. So before my mother was married... My mother was born in 1927, so she must have been 38. And she's sitting on the steps of what it seems to me is a cottage, but I don't know. And she's, she's in a bathing suit. And she looks gorgeous and elegant. And I think it was the time when she may have been dating my father, and I look at that and she's got this radiant smile on her face. And, you know, she she always wore her hair. She had curly, dark, dark brown hair. And she always wore it kind of short with the curls kind of flowing. And that's, she's got, yeah, she's got this smile on her face. She's sitting on these steps. And I look at that photo and I'm always encouraged by her smile and by her radiance and the love that really, that really comes out, even in a photo of, you know, a time before I was born, you know, before uh, when she was still kind of out in the world and single. I also think that this photo must have been taken somewhere near the ocean, which, you know, for all of us, as we grew up, I grew up in New England, not so far from, from the ocean. And that's also a really big, touchstone from my childhood and that's really continued to this day where you know we'd spend a lot of time near the ocean um both at the beach but also you know smelling the sweet grass and feeling that breeze so i can see all of that in this picture of my mother that's wonderful thank you for sharing
1: we put it on our virtual shelf (laughs) thank you Thank you. Ethel, you're a Ramani academic and a feminist, and you always emphasize that you bring in your community and you bring in your family into your work, in which regard?
0: One of the things, so I was trained in political science, but by a kind of renegade political scientist who really you know had a close attention to to history and to everyday life. And also I was trained by anthropologists and feminist anthropologists in particular. So my academic training comes from my supervisor, Timothy Mitchell, from my mentors, Laila Abulugod and Gayatri Spivak. And this this idea of, of kind of how everyday life comes into understanding, right, knowledge production is something that for me... I was trained that way in some ways, but but I had come to it beforehand, right? When I was in college, you know, one of the first things I did was to try to find books on Roma in the library. And there were very few, you know, Ian Hancock's books were there. Uh, some other books were there, but there weren't a lot. And I went through kind of, you know, all of my, my undergraduate and my graduate training Always, again, trying to, to strive for some sense of belonging in this place where I was, I'm, you know, I'm a very good academic in some ways, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a careful academic, but I'm also someone I, I, I've never felt quite at home in the academy. And the only way that I could come to feel at home was, you know, in my, in my understanding to bring it back. To my life, to to the life of my community, to not just the Romani community, but perhaps the larger kind of working class community that I I was a product of, which I was a product. And so at some point, you know, understanding what it meant to bring everyday life into knowledge production was how I began to understand the world and to produce my own knowledge. So I did it in my book about garment, you know, the garment industry, where I both brought into that book, my own position as an academic, my own positionality as a woman doing this work. And then in the current work, one of the things that I've realized is that knowledge is found in places that aren't always recognized as producers and in, in people who are not always recognized as producers of knowledge. And so I took all of, you know, I, I really tried to take that seriously and think about what it is that. We learn from listening and thinking through moments and histories and narratives and experiences that, aren't, that are usually not taken seriously. That's interesting that you say that you're looking for how everyday life comes
1: into knowledge projection. When we talk to the artist Daniel Baker, he's he, he's doing actually the same thing with his art, like bringing domestic art and tradition, what he calls Rama visuality, into his work. It's 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 comparable. It reminds me mm-hmm. of his approach.
0: Yeah, it's, it is, and you know we are very like minded in that, mm-hmm. Daniel and I. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and uh, another topic that you are working on or often associated with, I think, uh, that people know you for is work about yeah, certain events that don't always get the recognition that they should. For example, the genocide of Sinti and Roma during the Second World War. And uh, in 2016, Barack Obama appointed you as a member of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial, the first Romani member. Is that correct?
0: no. No, no, I mean yes. President Obama did appoint me to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council, but before me, um, in the nineteen nineties, uh, Ian Hancock had been appointed to that position okay. by by President Clinton, and Bill Duna had also been appointed by President Clinton. So there had been a whole period kind of where there were there were no Romani representatives, but um, I did come in on the shoulders of Ian and Bill and the work that they had done.
2: Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your work there?
0: Yes. Uh, so president Obama had, had appointed me and one of the things that, uh, or one of the, perhaps the reasons why I was appointed was because I really, uh, you know, the work, that I had done in taking Romani experiences of the Holocaust seriously, Um, you know, in in both in relation to the experiences of of Jewish experiences of the Holocaust, um, connecting them to to Roman Sinti experiences, but also, uh, you know, part of that has also meant really understanding the 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 multiplicity of of archival sources and and thinking about how it is that we can kind of bring romani voices in without always relying upon perpetrator narratives and here's what i mean by that so one of the things that that I think is really key that places like the USC Shoah Foundation have done, right, that the Holocaust Museum has done, that people like Gabriel Turnauer had done, was, was to take oral histories and testimonies of Roman Sinti survivors and make them central, or at least, you know, bring them into the knowledge production and the archive of the Holocaust, and so that was kind of the work that was how I began to think seriously about Holocaust history was was through these testimonies and through these oral histories the histories you know from the Shoah Foundation which you know they have 402 testimonies of of Roma and Sinti survivors in kind of every language across Europe and that was my entry into it because before that my family you know my my father and my uncles had fought on the US side of World War II. And when they came back, you know, during my childhood, I remember very vividly my father never wanting to talk about what he had seen or what he'd experienced as a soldier in Europe. That really stuck with me that, you know, that was that was something that was very unspoken in my family. And as I grew up and learned you know, more about the history of the Holocaust, I kept coming back to that, the ways in which, you know, my father and my father was, he had been a soldier in World War II, but he was very anti-war. And he was very anti, you know, he was against violence of any kind. And I think that must have shaped him. And I, you know, he, before he died, you know, we, we never talked about it. And so it was something where I was like, oh, well, that's, you know, I, I guess my father never talked about it. I'm not sure that I can move in and kind of begin to open up those those subjects. So I just, I, I also, it wasn't until uh, I began to watch some of those oral histories and to listen carefully to the testimonies that I realized or that I thought maybe, oh, wow, I can be in conversation with these survivors. And I can think about ways to do this where it's not dependent upon, you know, the the German National Archive, which was coming from a documentation of Nazi atrocities, right? I mean, that's, which is a very important archive, and it's a very key way to understanding what happened. But for me, it wasn't my way of understanding. My way of understanding was to listen to people's stories of survival, and to kind of take those seriously as a feminist, as someone who has been trained in ethnography, and try to understand the nuances of everyday life. So that was that was how I kind of entered into this work. And that was, I think, why President Obama and the Holocaust Museum kind of brought me into that space to really to open up some of the voices of Romani experiences and to to open up the ways in which, you know, they, these voices and, and these experiences are also part of our larger history and our understanding. Said, um, there are many
1: terms, Roma, genocide, holocaust, or the Romanist word Pochaimos. Which term do you use or would you consider appropriate
0: and Why? I think there are a number. I don't mind any term as long as it's recognized. <laughs> as long as, as long as there's a recognition of of everything that we suffered and of the you know the the kind of way in which survival has been a, a you know, and the people who survived, so the people who who were who were murdered and those who survived, as long as they're recognized. The terms are fine. I mean, I will say that Holocaust, when we use, you know, and I tend to use Holocaust, that connects us to this larger, this larger historical phenomenon that everyone recognizes as such, right? So that connects us to um, all of the other victim groups that that had been persecuted and murdered, you know, Jews and LGBT community members and uh, political prisoners, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, all, all. Of, poles, like all of that connection, really, that's why, that's why I use Holocaust, to make sure that we understand that this isn't an isolated you know, thing that happened to some Roma somehow, or to another group. But I want to make sure that we emphasize that connection. Mm. Roma genocide connects us, well, it shows the specificity of what happened to the Roma during the Holocaust, to Roma and Sinti, but it also connects the Sinti and Roma experience to other genocides and to other survivor communities, the Armenian genocide, the Cambodian genocide, the Guatemalan genocide. So there are ways that those two terms, you know, carry out a kind of for- forms of recognition that I think are complementary, but not necessarily overlapping. It's hard to sort of, you know, one of one of the things is it's hard to think of a Romani term that would speak the unspeakable. Um, you know, in my dialect, you know, we would probably use like, kalitrash or you know the kind of uh the the dark fear but you know there I know that you know there are people who use porimos there are other terms that that people use and all of them make sense to who use them and I wouldn't I guess I respect the the terms that are used by survivors by their families in whatever way they use them as long as they're recognized as such Mm. is the Roma holocaust still
1: the forgotten Holocaust, or do you see any any changes in, in historiography and the narratives and the and the discussions?
0: Yeah, I see I see quite a lot of changes. I mean, we think about sort of 1980, 1981, when Homanihosa and the Central Council of Sinti and Roma were having hunger strikes and occupying concentration camps in order to fight for recognition you know since then now we there's the memorial in berlin uh, there will be a memorial a memorial at leti at the former concentration camp that became a pig farm but now the pig farm has been finally closed down after activism and there will be a a memorial site in the next couple of years mm-hmm. we see you know youth uh, young people with pay who you know have been in the thousands coming to uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau to pay respects on August 2nd. And we, of course, see the recognition of August 2nd.
1: August 2nd is the Rama Holocaust Memorial Day. It commemorates the Sinti and Rama victims persecuted and murdered under National Socialism. The date was chosen because on the night of the 2nd to the 3rd of August 1944, 2,897 Roma, mostly women, children and elderly people, were killed in the Zygorna Familienlager Gypsy Family Camp, at the Auschwitz concentration camp. It is commonly acknowledged that about 500,000 Roma and Sinti were killed in the genocide by the Nazis.
0: We're in a different moment now, and it's really come from those 50 years of activism by survivor families and by Romani and Sinti families and, and, and activists who have really pushed to say, no, this is something that's important to our history. It's important to, to European history and to world history. So we are seeing a change, but there's still a lot more that we need to do to make sure that we, you know, that moment, that genocide is recognized
2: uh, yeah, and and the survivors are are disappearing. They're passing. Yes. They're they're not very many left, and not going to be around much longer. What should we do about this?
0: We have to listen to the survivors, <gasps> both um, the ones who are with us, and also to the records left by those who have gone. And you know, by records, I do mean the the you know the video testimonies, but also the kinds of what what they've left behind and the family to whom they've told these stories. You know, that's, again, that's a very Romani way of being, you know, that, that we pass down our history intergenerationally through stories, right through it, through oral transmission. And to remember that that is part of how we can continue to build that history and to understand that history, even as, our survivor generation passes. you know, there are still some survivors out there. And I was just, I was very struck uh, last month by the, the interview with um, silly Schmidt in uh, I think it was Deutsche Welt, where she talks about, you know, she's 92 or 96 goodness. I think she's 96. And she didn't talk about her experiences until something like two years ago. So what, what really that, that struck me, right, that there are stories that are still out there that need to be told, even as that generation is passing, and we need to listen to them.
1: How do you commit the 2nd of August, the commemoration day?
0: We always stop and remember as a family. And then, you know, um, whenever I can be with a larger community on that day, I certainly do that with my family as well, and then usually we, we, we try or, I, you know, I give some sort of talk or, or I'm, I'm usually part of some sort of commemoration ceremony outside of the private one that, that my family and I carry out. But it's really important, you know, that we, we observe that in the U.S. and in Europe and across the world to stop and to remember the dead. Yes, and to honor the survivors.
1: Mm. Yes. Ethel, reclaiming the camp as one of your main theses or approaches, which uh, has two meanings, the concentration camp and the Roma camp. Um, I quote, you said, I reclaim the camp in the name of the political, in the name
0: of the avant-garde. Can you tell us what you mean by this? Yes. Thanks, Isabel. Yeah, I on the one hand, what I think is key, as we've been talking about the history of the Holocaust, the Roma genocide, is that we don't forget, and we, you know, we remember the ways in which that whole trajectory of that period was marked through the Lager. Um, you know, and I think about Marzahn and the and the Olympics, you know, the the 1936 Olympics and the the. The creation of Marzan, which, which you know, was a camp where people's wagons, you know, were brought to this to this place of enclosure of of what was in fact a, a kind of a prison um, in in the suburbs of Berlin. Zwangslager
1: Marzahn. Between 1936 and 1945 the National Socialists established a forced camp for Sinti and Roma on the site of the today's Otto-Rosenberg-Platz in Berlin-Marzahn. The first arrests with about 600 men, women and children took place in July 1936 in preparation for the Olympic Games. The total number of internees for the period 1936 to can be estimated at 1,200. From the beginning of the war, many of them were used as forced labors in Berlin's industry. The internees became victims of racial research or were deported from Marzahn to the Zigeunerlager Lager Gypsy Camp in the concentration camp Auschwitz-Birkenau.
0: But I also you know and, and and then to move through of course all the ways in which the lager was was central to that genocide and, and to the mechanics and the the mass death that, that was perpetrated by that genocide. And on the other hand, you know, I also, I think it's really key to understanding the position of encampment and the ways in which it also was a method and uh, a strategy for survival by Roma and Sinti, you know, over, over hundreds of years. Even as our people were denied the right to own land, even as we were enslaved, depending on, you know, where you are geographically, it was the practices of encampment and the camp and the Mahala and the Romani community that really that's, that solidarity that existed and those practices of encampment that allowed for survival. Right. And that, and that, so that kind of way in which there is a double meaning to camp and encampment is something that because it's central to our history and it's central. To why it is that that we're here today? For me, it's it's both an important kind of site of of historiography, but it's also an important theoretical mode to focus on and to open up and to analyze. Mm-hmm. In one of your texts, I think you used
1: the Hannah Arendt quote: "Refugees re- expelled from one country to the next represent the avant-garde of their people. Mm-hmm. This fits very well. And you're also referring, this I found very interesting, to, to Edward Said's notion of the othering and how the majority society is perceiving the camp um, and say like the Roma camp is an, an icon of, of Europe's internal Orient. I like that very much.
0: Yes. Um, and it is true. Yeah. So that, that, aren't when I, you know, that, that's, we are, we are the avant-garde. We're the ones who can I mean, anyone who's who's who suffered and survived in this way, right, especially in this moment when everything seems to be kind of up in the air and everything seems to be very tenuous, those forms of survival um, and then the history of the refugee, the history of Romani people is something that we can draw on to, to think about what resilience looks like what survival looks like and sometimes what thriving in the face of adversity looks like you know mm-hmm. that becomes a kind of model for all of us you know even as part of the very reason why we've had to we've had to survive is because of the consistent you know internal othering you know Roma where we were the first we were the first refugees in many ways in Europe and when when Roma came into Europe right we were greeted with mistrust we were greeted with a kind of constant othering that we've had to we've had to fight against we've had to not endure and because you know that's something i guess you do endure it but we've had to find ways of of making life and making beauty and loving and continuing to survive despite that so it's the unconventional approaches
1: of the rama right yeah yeah Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I think the duality you mentioned, the duality of how you can interpret a word and interpret a word like camp, encampment, uh, but then the duality of how do you use that as a member of the community to your advantage, to look at it differently, to survive in a different way, how people from outside can look at it in two different ways, this added layer of I don't want to say mystery, but the complexity of the theory and how you apply it can reveal a lot as well. I think that you've explained that very well.
0: Yeah, and I think the other part of that is, of course, at this moment when we're toppling monuments, right? Monuments to racism and monuments to imperialism, you know, across Europe and in the U.S., right? Because that's been something that has marked the summer. One of the things that, you know, keeps coming back to me is... Edouard Glisson's point about, you know, our monuments are elsewhere. And I think for for Romani people, for for other racialized communities, for feminist communities, you know, that's we are in many ways anti-monumental. You know, our monuments have to be elsewhere, and they often have to be kind of contingent and internal. And that also becomes part of what I mean when I talk about encampment. Mm-hmm.
1: You once used the beautiful term monuments of hope. I think it was in your text in the catalog of the Future Roma exhibition on the Venice Biennale last year. Mm -hmm. I like that term very much. So the monument uh, of hope is portable. and, And what
0: does it contain for you? It contains love. It contains refusal, ephemeralities and contingencies on the one hand, but also this enduring Transmission of our stories, our, our existence across generations and across time and to each other.
1: Ethel, you're an academic but also a cultural person. Um, let's talk a bit about culture. Sure. Good.
2: <laughs> well, this podcast aims to show that Roma are central to European history and culture, to which you have made a lot of contributions. Where are these contributions most evident to you?
0: Clearly in music. Certainly, music as we know it would not be the same without Roma. You know, we've brought that across uh, across the, the the kind of all the generations since we've we've been in Europe. But also in terms of visuality, and I know when you spoke to Daniel last week, you know he talked about that kind of visuality, and I think you can see that in some of the aesthetics around, you know, painting and and decorative arts we have you know our language you know there are so many parts of multiple european languages that that contain romany words and you don't always that's often often not recognized and 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 i can think of other ways of knowledge production right I, you know from what i would argue right the ways in which psychoanalysis you know, comes from things like fortune telling, where you read people and you work with people to kind of have them come to a different truth. We see it in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of manifestations of culture. Romani people have been central and have been overlooked, right? Flamenco, which is, you know, seen as a kind of part of Spanish or Andalusian heritage, would not exist if we hadn't, you know, done that work and, and brought that beauty to the world.
1: Yeah, and you always emphasize that it's so important that Roma should take back their culture, fight for Romani authorship, for Romani signature.
0: What strategies are there for doing this? Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, ARIAC and the Roma Archive are two central places where that's been been happening, where, you know, you bring together Romani culture and knowledge production um, and you show the kind of breadth and and depth of that but I think it's also you know about making sure that that you know that those resistant practices to statecraft we have to maintain a pushback against that that, that co-optation by the state and by power and we do that you know through these places where you the repositories that, that kind of show the extent of our cultural production we do that through not accepting the appropriation by dominant forces. Yeah, I think you know those those are kind of the places to do that is but it also takes more than you know more than one or just a few people but this is where it gets really important to have everybody together.
1: Yeah. You think the Roma art label is a strategy for this or do you see the danger of exotization again?
0: I think it has to be it would have to be done very carefully. You know, we don't want to build upon something where you know it's just dependent upon stereotypes but i think if it's done carefully we can we can begin to open it up to the nuances and to see romani artistic production in all of its complexity right so there's not just part of it is you know we can't think that it's just one kind of folkloric model or you know, one kind of, uh, you know, something that is always easily recognizable as Romani. But that Romani artistic production, it does span generations, but it also spans genres. It's, again, to go back to some of my argument around the avant-garde, it's not only fueled the avant-garde as we know it, but it's constantly evolving and changing in ways that are are very much about the conditions under which people live and about the conditions of production. So I don't think you can have or understand Romani art without understanding both the precarity that that Romani people have suffered and the ways in which, to go back to Said, the ways in which we've always been produced as other.
2: Mm.
0: So that, that artistic production, all of that complexity, all of that history, and all the ways in which Roma are currently marginalized, right? One of the things that the Romani art label could do and and any notion of Romani artistic production is also to make sure that it's part of this kind of larger social force that not just says, you know, we're here, but that the conditions under which, to which we've been subject
1: need to change. Yeah, and that Romani cultural production is really part of... Uh, the European history of culture. Yes, what is perceived as Romani culture by majority society is often just a culture of poverty. Yeah, and it's
0: that's just wrong. Yeah, erroneous on multiple exactly. levels. Yeah.
2: yeah, I really like what you said about the psychoanalysis and fortune telling. How you no. Know, looking at that as an avant-garde uh, example. Uh it never occurred to me and uh, I think you're spot on with some of these uh practices of of what existed before what exists now and and where does it come from? Well, there there aren't enough questions in 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 this way. I wanted to ask you uh, about Prezak performing Roma identity as a strategy and critique. Could you tell us a little bit more what is Prezak exactly and are there any upcoming events?
0: is, it was a project that uh, Jane Collins, my colleague at the University of the Arts London and I uh, began and we brought together Romani artists and intellectuals from across Europe uh, in particular from Spain and France and uh, Hungary and the UK and Romania to start to think about how it is that Romani artistic practice, um, performative practice in particular, can you know already is 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 used not just as I said earlier as a kind of survival strategy, but also as a deeply kind of critical strategy, a strategy of possibility for finding new ways of being, and you know, and it did begin in fact with uh, a performance that Jane, Jane is not Romani, she came from uh, history as a history as a theater director. And when I had come to the University of the Arts London as the Fulbright Distinguished Chair, we, we started to talk and she's like, you know, I'd like you to do a performance, you know, I think you'd be great at this. And so she actually had me do a performance piece uh, where I told
2: fortunes. Oh, that was her idea. Oh my God.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, and in my office at the university where, you know, people would come in not quite knowing that they were expecting, they were expecting a tutorial and that tutorial ended up being a palm reading (laughs) that was, you know, that the tutorial was a palm reading where I would also talk about gendered uh, and racialized labor practices. So you know, and that was coming out of, I guess, a, a sort of a thing where I have been, so the book project that I'm working on now is is looking at kind of how it is that we, we see these, these hidden knowledges. And I had been talking to Jane about fortune telling and Freud and, you know, kind of thinking about kind of hidden histories of psychoanalysis because, you know, what it is that fortune tellers do is they, you know, they read people's psyches. I mean, I don't want to give, you know, we don't want to give away the whole... Thing. But but you read people's psyches, you you, yeah. you enter into a relationship with them, which helps them to heal, right, through the connection and and the understanding of their psyches. And yet that's something that's never codified, you know, into a kind of a science. And so for me, it's always that kind of move between, you know, what's science, what's not, what's knowledge, what's not, that that came out of. So we, we began that that in one instance. And then um, I developed that as you know in various places in Europe, including at the Festival of Romani Resistance in Paris, in Berlin, at the um, House, Carve, there. the the Roma model, the yeah. cosmopolitan other. Yes. Yeah. We talked yes. to Daniel about this lecture performance last week. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean and Daniel and I, I mean that was that was incredible when the two of us did it together because we spent a day sort of by ourselves drawing and kind of planning this and it was just this we had all this very intensive kind of retreat and then we came out in public and we got attacked in in some you know I don't know if Daniel talked about that but we were the subject of a kind of 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 art leaks uh you know where people were very upset that they they saw us as replicating harmful stereotypes Mm -hmm. On the one hand, and then on the other hand, when we got there, uh, you know, there was one woman in particular, uh, a South African woman, who stood up and said the opposite: "Like you're selling your magic, you know, you're you're giving the tricks to your magic. you were a magical people." So we we were criticized for both sides, right? <laughs> one was this, and and so what for me that showed was how kind of powerful and productive this could be is really thinking through in a critical way in in a in a kind of. Um, strategic way about the possibilities of pushing back against the stereotypes on the one hand, but also building upon the kind of knowledges that we often push aside on the other. So, so that was that. And, you know, and Bill was part of uh, is part of Prezac. Yep. Um, and, you know, we we have friends and co thinkers and producers across Europe who have been part of that project there's nothing coming up, you know. We had COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> COVID is coming uh, up. <laughs> you know, but maybe we have to think about about reinvigorating some of that, you know, for the kind of digital world. Because, as we know, you know, in the current moment, uh, in various parts of Europe, Roma were blamed for the spreading of COVID, right? By in by nationalist groups, by nationalist governments. And so. So to event, a digital
1: decolonial palm reading, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, what just what just comes into my mind is it's really interesting uh, that, that a group always that always looks into, an, let's say, an uncertain future through persecution, through marginalization, through nomadism, that this group is now predicting the future for members for, of the majority society. This is. Quite interesting, Yeah. It really is.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, art can be a very powerful tool of resistance. So do you think that Roma art can offer enough
0: resistance? Or what does it need to to, to fully develop its power? I think, I mean, it it has developed enough resistance to allow us to survive and to thrive and to continue. Even in the face of of waves of, of persecution and of marginalization. That said, you know, it shouldn't be that we keep having to produce knowledge and to produce art in the face of adversity. So, you know, with support and with recognition by a majority society, which again has begun to some extent, but not, you know, it's still a struggle and it's an uphill struggle because, you know, there's always the expectation that Roma will get by, Roman Romani Roman people and Roman and Sinti will just get by with whatever the world gives us. And we will but my goodness think about what we could do and what kind of change we could uh, could enact with a kind of deep support and recognition of all that we've done yeah you
1: said before that um, Roma have maintained their history and culture through uh, intergenerational intergener- transmission of, of memory. So, so the traditions and culture have been passed on from the older generation to the younger. Can you give an example from your own family?
0: Yes. Um, well, I, I, the, the example that I began with, even you know, the story of my family's arrival to the U.S., mm-hmm. but also the language. You know, again, we're not taught. Mm. Romanian schools and you know growing up I can still feel the intimacy of our language and how it was that my mother and my grandmother spoke to me in our language you know it was it was literally I think for me my mother tongue and how it is when we you know the ways in which we use the language amongst amongst ourselves and with each other and that creates a kind of connection and intimacy and that's been passed down, you know, through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But we can also think of other things, you know, and I've, you know, the, the, the weaving of sweetgrass into baskets, the, the respect, you know, cultures of respect for our elders, the various cleanliness practices. All of these things are, are things that we learn from the intimacy of family. And they're not things that are taught you know, in schools or by the outside. And that's something, the power of those as they're passed down, they're things that I hold with me, that I teach to my children, the love and the respect for horses, and the ways in which we we stick together in the face of everything. Those are all things that that I was taught through my family and things that I continue to pass down to my children. And I hope they continue to pass down to their children as we continue this intergenerational transmission. Yes.
1: Actually, you already answered one of our next questions. Rama, as role models, so what can the majority of societies learn from Rama communities? I think this was the answer, wasn't it?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Coming back to what you were saying, that uh, there's a lot of things we don't learn in school. A lot of things that people don't learn about us in school make a little bit of a jump here. And there's not any way that you can learn in school how to get your name on the list at the United Nations to be able to speak on uh, International Day of Commemoration for Holocaust on the 25th of January, like you did uh, in 2013. That was quite a special uh, and amazing moment, a historical moment. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to do that, why you wanted to do that, how, What? How, how do you still feel about that? Does that stick out in your mind as an important memory?
0: Yes, I, I mean I was on the podium that Che Guevara you know, stood on. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> among other people. <laughs> I mean, other people maybe who weren't so uh, good. <laughs> but But anyway, I mean, that kind of, that moment was yeah, it was incredible and you know, I, that happened because of the activism of Roma and Sinti from across the world. You know, a letter-writing campaign that was started by Petra Gilbert, the kind of, and, and the, the, the waves of people who wrote in to say, you've got this commemoration at the United Nations. And there's been very little Romani representation in that event. And again, like every, you know, all of the ways in which we've kind of gained recognition in the world, it's always been through protest and through activism. And I did, you know, I cited the kind of long history, you know, the Romani Rose to Petra, <laughs> coming up to that moment, right? That's that's nearly 50 years of history. So so for me it was it was an incredible moment to stand on that podium where you know che Guevara stood, where other people stood. And to, to also then, in my speech, talk about the heroes that we have, you know, those who survived the Holocaust, such as Alfreda Markovska, Josef Titel, Amilcar Debar, Debar, you know, and to really, to, to think about kind of all the history, because the theme that year was something like heroes and those who dared something like that right so i talked about the people who were not only survivors of the genocide but who had been part of resistance to the nazis and their allies so that was yeah that was an incredible moment yeah this podcast aims to highlight the
1: diversity of roma so their different national national characteristics their heterogeneous cultures social economic differences so you're part of uh, let's say an, a lead of roma academics um They are emerging, I have the impression. Are we still far from a critical mass?
0: Yeah, I think we are. Again, that's going to take support in terms of scholarships. You know, we have a handful, maybe a half a dozen people uh, to a dozen. And, you know, we have academics in various parts of the world. But it can't just be a handful doing the, all this work right i mean we we can do it but you know i think about ian hancock i think about Angela Kotze, about julius rostash about manta matake Unida costache ana mirga you know we could we could think about what that looks like but we have to support more you know more education the incoming generations i would not be here today if it hadn't been for my full scholarship you know two universities we, we couldn't have afforded it otherwise and you know the fact that there aren't enough bursaries and enough scholarships for romani academics you know even even with the work of mentoring that, that Colin Clark is doing that you know the others i've mentioned are doing that mentoring has to be complemented by the training and so so you've got that at the at the university level and then you know, when you think about kind of primary and secondary school, there's there are segregated classrooms in Europe. You know, Roma are excluded from school. Yeah, and Romania especially. Mm. Absolutely, and and across across the region, in places that you might not expect it. You know, and so that also needs to change. We need to make sure that Roma have access to education and to support in order to succeed in in not just in academic spaces, but everywhere.
1: Yeah, there's still a lot of work to do in one of our later episodes we invited the artist selma selman who's running a actually private campaign um, for scholarships for a couple of girls just two dozen or something uh called get the heck to school (laughs) (laughs) that's the initiative great
2: yeah i'm wondering Isabella, if we should maybe jump ahead to our game
1: yes Yes. Give a game. Yes. I forgot. We have. We actually, we have two other games. Let's start with one game. So we will read you some terms, and you answer spontaneously, without thinking, just with one word or a short sentence. Okay. Okay. Good. Woman. Strength. Community. Togetherness. Resistance. Power. Nature. Grass. Gender. Construct home love yesterday tomorrow
0: tomorrow mhm tomorrow oh i said tomorrow now you're asking me what to say in response <laughs> yeah.
2: yes that's the next word on our list yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> today
2: hope future europe
0: resistance
2: politics
0: possibility
2: no or no <laughs>
0: That's us, isn't it?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next one. Bok or Bacht. Bok in your dialect, Bacht in... uh, Oh,
0: Bacht. Hope.
2: Gorjo or Gajo.
0: Okay, I don't even know what to say to that. (laughs) Rom.
2: Okay, Okay, last one. anti gypsyism
0: The thing we have to fight.
2: Okay, great. That was fun.
0: (laughs) 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 That's great.
2: Dilno is the Anglo-Romani word for fool or foolish. Dilino is the Central European version of the same word. It's the diminutive of the word dilo. This is originally an adjective, but can be used as a noun. And in both cases, even people who don't know Romani very well will often know this word. Book is the Anglo-Romani word for luck. Its Central European version, Bacht, means luck or happiness. Bachtelo is the adjective, means happy or lucky. It's typically used in a greeting Teoves Bachtelo, may you be happy and lucky. Gorjo is the Anglo Romani word for a non Romani person. In Central European Romani, the word is Gajo. In its original sense, it's not pejorative. Depending on context and tone of voice, it can be pejorative, and people not familiar with the Romani language often presume this negative meaning.
1: Ethel, you think this current crisis we are facing right now—corona pandemic, climate change, increasing racism, anti um, can this also be a starting point
0: for for a change? Absolutely. Um, and again, I think throughout we've been talking about the ways in which we, as Romani people, have survived even when the ground is shifting beneath our feet. And we see, you know, the ways in which, for the world right now, the ground is really shifted beneath our feet. And that, you know, is, is, we see that it opens up so many possibilities. You know, you see it now with, with fewer planes flying. You can kind of hear the birds differently. There's a real possibility for fewer carbon emissions. But also, you know, the, the ways in which people are living, you know, when you're very, when, in terms of privilege, right, at the current moment, when you can stay home and in a safe way, you know, with people with whom you're safe. That's a great privilege. We can start to think about how we can build that for everybody. A world without high, you know, high levels and, and overconsumption, a world without inequality, where everybody is actually safe to shelter in conditions where they have enough food, where they have enough resources, and where they're not gonna have a fear of eviction, where they're not gonna have a fear of the threat of, you know, neo-fascism, all of these things, right, that this opens up possibility because we can see the models where where it can work because, you know, we, we are in the current moment. We see how important solidarity is. We see how important security is, but not security, the security of the police state, but security of caring for each other and protecting each other. And those become new models of possibility,
2: Maybe we could add to that the, the Black Lives Matter movement in, in the U.S. as, as part of absolutely. this current crisis and change. Do you see that helping to build up some momentum for Roma, either in the U.S. or in Europe or both?
0: I mean, absolutely. The, the Black Lives Matter movement has been inspirational, you know, and it's led by women. It's been something that's been spontaneous in, very, in various parts of of the U S and has had a kind of spontaneous outpouring of solidarity across the world. I mean, you know, it's, it's born, it was born uh, in the face of the murder of black people by the police. And it's gained momentum as that murder hasn't stopped. And I think, you know, that's, that's key, but, but some of the things, you know, and that, that does need to stop and people shouldn't stop protesting until, until, Black Lives Matter. And in the same way, you know, one of the things that, I, as as we've been talking today, you know, one of the things that I want to keep emphasizing is the importance of resistance and what resistance has done to create change. And in that way, you know, I think we've, as many people, we've carried out resistance, but we know that it can't stop. We, we see the Black Lives Matter movement and the tactics people are using and the ways in which they're coming out on the street in the face of murder. And that becomes an inspiration for everybody that we can we can create change, we can create attention. We can show the world through our presence in the public eye, through our protests, that our lives matter.
2: What else do you want to show the world? What's your vision of a utopia for Europe?
0: It's a, it's a place where a utopia for Europe is a utopia for the world. And we have to remember that unless Romani people are safe and secure, you know, the rest of Europe is not going to be safe and secure. Unless we're free to do, you know, to, to create culture and to to love our families and to make change for ourselves in positive ways, the rest of Europe and the rest of the world will not be free to do so. And that's, that's the utopia, is that we all live together and we, we create love and we create beauty and we create knowledge in a secure way together.
2: Is there anything you might want to add as a Romatopia for your local Roma community in New England?
0: Just to I mean to have that security that comes with the building of community and of love and not to lose the connections because one of the things that happened with the taking over of, of our lands and, and the eviction of our people in that in in Massachusetts was I think a kind of scattering. A scattering to you know to various places where we don't always have a place to meet, and so to continue those connections and to to have that security of the maintain the maintenance of love and the maintenance of tradition and the and the the possibility to build the world together, and to make it a better place for everyone together. It's the same vision everywhere.
1: That's a perfect last sentence of this conversation, I think, Ethel, <laughs> but. We don't stop before we make one last little game with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ethel, if you could ask one question on all radio, TV and print media in Europe for one day, what would it be?
2: Wow. I thought you said you weren't going to see that anymore.
0: I know, I did. <laughs> <laughs> ah, um what would that question be? You know, my first answer is, what do you really know about your Romani neighbors? But the second question is, perhaps, why are we so afraid of change? And why are we so afraid to open up our world and our lives to
2: other people? Ooh, I like that. Mm. I think that's a very, very direct and to the point question no
0: mm-hmm. yeah and why not right why not open it up for everybody yeah I like that yeah me too
1: hey <laughs> yeah I love these games they're great <laughs> <laughs> So Ethel thank you very much for this inspiring. Conversation we could continue for hours.
2: Yes, um, yes, thank oh. you. I, I we had lots of questions that we didn't get to ask, but I think you did a good job and and yeah, I would like to continue playing, but playtime is over.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was or maybe so it's lovely. just begun. Who
2: knows? <laughs> it has
0: just begun. Oh yeah. it was so okay. lovely to be with both of you and I just just a pleasure and and a delight to be here today. Thank you both. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for your time.
1: I enjoyed it very much. Thank you,
0: Ethel. And here's to doing it in person sometime soon.
1: We do. Yes.
0: We have to. (laughs) And I'll bring a cake. (laughs)
1: <laughs> great look. me too
2: i promise to bring a <laughs> cake too okay. i cook coffee <laughs> okay
0: Perfect. so thank you ethel thank hope you to see you soon thank you william i hope Thanks. to see you soon too have a wonderful day you too okay. bye bye Bye-bye. bye
2: romatopia is supported by the federal agency for civic education and the council of europe roma and travelers team idea and concept isabel rabe Romotopia is hosted and edited by Isabel Rabbe and William Bila and directed by Katja Lehmann. Sound design by Selamet and Kefait Prisani. Cover motif by Daniel Baker. Production Media Bricks Berlin 2020.